day from the global lane. Coronavirus cases keep climbing, but the China threat to the USA may go well beyond that deadly virus. Anti-government protests in Iran, now just a trickle. A look at what is happening and who is leading the way to bring about regime change. Setting it straight on the coronavirus. Was it manipulated in a Chinese military lab? And all you need is love. The truth about St. Valentine's Day. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. The coronavirus pandemic is posing a big health and economic crisis for the Chinese at this time. But many foreign policy experts here in the United States believe the virus is the least of America's concerns when it comes to China. President Trump has taken on China's unfair trade advantage. But what about defense and national security? Well, our next guest believes the China threat is growing. Brigadier General Robert Spaulding is author of the book Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. He's a former China strategist for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. General Spaulding, good to have you here. So I know many people are concerned about the spread of this coronavirus in the United States, but it seems like health officials in our government are doing a good job containing it here. So what should be our greater concern when it comes to China? Well, certainly the greater concern with regard just to this coronavirus alone is a, is a secrecy and control of the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, uh, this goes all the way back to the beginning of December. Uh, didn't really start coming out until mid-January. By then, uh, the uh, the epidemic had had spread, and so bringing in uh, at an early date uh, our CDC representatives and the WHO would have been the right choice. Of course. Uh, China is led by the Chinese Communist Party, which is a totalitarian regime. And essentially, we haven't learned anything uh, from, you know, the 70 years of the Cold War, where uh, the Soviet Union essentially ruled over um, the, the United Soviet states, much like the Chinese Communist Party rules over China today. And so we see that come out every once in a while, um, blatantly, like with re regard to this coronavirus. But what's more damaging, and what I wrote about in my book, is the is a very uh, stealthy way that they go about using globalization and the internet to insinuate themselves in every democratic institution within the United States, even to the point where suppressing speech and suppressing religion is, is something that they can do uh, really at will. Well, I, I want to talk about that some more specifics uh, in a moment. But President Trump says that he's been in touch with Chinese President Xi Jinping about the coronavirus, that they're friends. They have a good relationship. So how do you see this viral outbreak affecting U.S.-China relations? Well, I think it's more affecting the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. So what's finally happening within China is the Chinese people are beginning to wake up and understand what kind of regime they live under. Of course, they've been quarantined to their apartments. Some have actually been locked in their apartments to die. I think, uh, you know, the United States and, and other democracies have, democracies have come to know uh, things like the uh, concentration camps in Xinjiang and the forced organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience that has been illuminated by the UK tribunal. But the people of China have essentially been kept in the dark. And so for the first time, they're actually beginning to see the true nature of the regime, which has led to widespread um, dissent within the country for the first time, uh, really since the Tiananmen uh, Square massacre. Now, the president's fiscal year 2021 budget, I think, keeps the defense budget about the same, around $740 billion. What will that mean for the national defense strategy that prioritizes China? Well, I think one of the, the major things to have happened policy-wise in the United States 
is last August we pulled out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was a treaty between Russia and the United States. Now, what that treaty said was the United States couldn't build intermediate-range ballistic or cruise missiles, but the Russians were violating it, and the Chinese have uh, used the fact that they weren't a signatory to build thousands, literally thousands, of intermediate-range ballistic and cruise missiles that are conventionally armed, some are nuclear-armed, in the region, which really puts our forces, uh, like carrier battle groups in our bases, our air bases in the region, at, uh, under threat. And what we needed to do was really begin to build some of those weapons ourselves because they are quite effective and efficient at creating deterrence. They are taking our innovation, our technology, our talent and capital and using it to build up their science and technology capability and their manufacturing capability. And so not just building weapons or buying weapons is what the United States need to do. Rather, it needs to begin to invest in infrastructure and in manufacturing and science and technology and STEM education. By the way, these are all things that the Eisenhower administration did during the beginning of the Cold War, which led to our victory. So the national security strategy really talks about changing the equation. Stop giving all of our technology, our innovation, our talent, and our capital to the Chinese to build up their power. Let's begin to invest in America and the American people. And I'm hopeful that in the, uh, the next administration, we'll begin to uh, put in some of those measures in place. Well, I know in his State of the Union address, the president said he's committed to building the newest branch of the U.S. military. That's the U.S. Space Force. The Russians are shadowing our spy satellites in space. So how concerned should we be about outer space warfare with the Russians or the Chinese? Within their region, very concerned because we don't have any of the same ground or air-based assets that the Chinese Communist Party has built in the region. And so that really makes our space base assets vulnerable. I would say more so than the Space Force. So we need to really be focused on the, uh, the cyber defenses of the United States. Uh, the American military doesn't focus on protecting the data of the American people. We saw recently that Experian uh, was rated of 148 million records. So 148 million Americans had their uh, credit uh, data stolen by the Chinese Communist Party. The Department of Justice indicted the four PLA officers. But nevertheless, that data is within China now, and they're going to use it to undermine you know, the, the, the people or to get close to the people that they want to. And so it's an incredible um, tragedy that the American military is not protecting the data of the American people. It isn't a national security strategy that we should do that by building a secure nationwide 5G network, but we're, we're not currently doing that because of convention, because of business models, because of politics. And I think we really need to understand the kind of challenges we face today with globalization, the Internet, and protecting our freedoms. You know, everybody's familiar with the fact that General uh, Manager of the Houston Rockets was almost fired at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. But even more insidious is this ability to uh, influence Americans at the individual level, particularly after 2016. We saw the Russians use AI bots, artificial intelligence bots, um, social media networks, and big data analysis to create protests throughout the United States. The Chinese are perfecting these technologies and techniques as well, and it really creates a, a challenge for democracies today. Cybersecurity, a big issue right here in the U.S. Okay, U.S. Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, author, former China strategist for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and senior fellow of the Hudson Institute. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thank you.
More than a month has passed since President Trump announced an American drone attack successfully killed Iranian terrorist Qasem Soleimani. Anti-government protesters took to the streets in the aftermath, but it now seems like demonstrations in Iran have subsided. Activists in the West fear there's no strong, unified opposition that could bring about Iranian regime change. Well, here with more is Manda Zandervan, founder and president of the Alliance of Iranian Women. She's author of the new book, The Ladies' Secret Society, History of the Courageous Women of Iran. Ms. Zandervan, thank you for joining us. So why have the demonstrations subsided? It seems that a little has changed inside Iran recently, but that. Well, uh, if you remember, in five days, they killed about 1,500 people, 1,500 people. They killed them, just, just like that not counting the bodies that were found later in the rivers and lakes all over the country. So when you are dealing with a uh, Soleimani that was called general in America, who was nothing but a thug and elementary school education construction worker, but he, was he became general because the supreme leader used him because he was a terrorist and a murderer. He told, after the December uprising, he told the people of Iran, I have no problem of killing 10 million of yours to protect my supreme leader and Islamic rule. So when you are told by that kind of a person, told a nation that they have risen up in all over, I mean, throughout the last 40 years, they have been rising up with no support from the Western democracies. Uh, they, they see there is no hope. Although they get killed and put in prisons, 10,000 plus have been put in prisons, tortured, flogged, and everything. Right now, there are 132 Iranian women in prisons who have been, who are lawyers, scientists, teachers, and these people are in prison. And the whole kind of Western European countries, whom we call the old colonialists in Iran, they were. And, uh, and when they are making deals with the regime, why do you think, what kind of hope would that give the people of Iran to rise up and get a few thousand more of them and their children killed? Tell us what role are Iranian women playing then in trying to bring about change in Iran? What are they doing? Well, Iranian women have been fighting uh, from day one. I was there when the Khomeini's regime was established by the support of the President Carter's administration who were lied to, but uh, they, um, at that time, we rose up. We marched on the streets under snow, rain, wind. Day after day, we got beaten up by, the, by, by uh, chains and bats of the hoodlums of the of Khomeini's uh, regime, and nobody cared in the world, and nobody stood by us. And then we have done that. We, we had the first 10 years of, of uh, bloody war with Saddam Hussein. One million Iranian boys and young men were killed in that war. Nobody cared. Then there was 
uh, University of Tehran throughout the country uh, rose up and nobody cared. The kids, the, the regime hoodlums went into the high rises, the dormitories on both sides of university and threw the kids out of the windows from 10th floor, 8th floor, whatever, wherever they were. And 2009, they rose up, Obama, Obama, are you with them or with us? Marched on the streets. And what did President Obama do? Gave the regime $148 billion and supported. And they, do, they did a deal the, uh, that empowered them and weakened the people of Iran. And how much do you think people can rise up without any support and support for the regime instead of for them? Well, let, let me ask you this then, Manda, as we wrap this up. Is the United States on the right course? What should President Trump and his administration be doing right now that they're not doing? Well, they have to get the Western European democracies. As he said, he told them in London that, you know, the business can continue after this humanity is taken care of and they can stand by the people. Stop Stop empowering the regime. This regime, as long as they know that they are supported by the powers to be, they are going to kill Iranian people, children, and million and ten, and abuse everything as long as they get support from the Western world. So a unified response then, not only from the United exactly. States, but our Western allies. The book is The Ladies' Secret Society. History of the Courageous Women of Iran. Manda Zandervan, founder and president of the Alliance of Iranian Women, thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you for listening to the voice of Iranian people. The coronavirus is still spreading throughout China and elsewhere. A Chinese doctor who sounded the alarm last December about the dangers of the coronavirus has died from the deadly disease. His mother says the Chinese government forced him to keep quiet about what he knew. What is the truth about the origins of the coronavirus? Was it altered in a Chinese lab? Well, here with us is biologist, researcher, expert on viruses, James Lyon Weiler. Dr. Weiler is editor-in-chief of the journal Science, Public Health Policy, and the Law. He's also CEO and the president of the Institute for Peer and Applied Knowledge and author of a book on the causes of autism, another on the Ebola virus. So, Dr. Weiler, research shows that the coronavirus may have been altered by someone, possibly the Chinese. We know there's a level four super lab in Wuhan, China. That's the epicenter of the viral outbreak. So tell us what you've discovered from your research. Since last week, I've been working full time to try to falsify the hypothesis that uh, in some way there may be man-made uh, elements in this in this in this virus, and so I looked. I downloaded all of the data uh, of all modified coronavirus spike proteins that I could find, as well as other coronavirus spike proteins in available databases, and I've been analyzing them. And it turns out that there's a characteristic signature that I hope might be useful in helping scientists and the medical community identify particularly pathogenic coronaviruses related to 2019 NCOV. Now, I, I looked deep in the databases and I found a virus way back in 2005 that was sequenced by the Chinese, by Chinese researchers, 
that was not identified as particularly pathogenic. I don't think they know what they had back then. And that means that IPAC has ruled out, as of this time, uh, that the original evidence that we thought that it might be modified by the Chinese military, uh, we've falsified that hypothesis to our satisfaction using independent data and a number of researchers, quite a number, a large number of researchers around the, the world are uh, validating those results. So what do you think happened then? How did this get well, out and why is it causing such a, uh, well, it could be a pandemic? Our health officials are saying it is a pandemic. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, and the World Health Organization are saying it, it, it qualifies as a pandemic. So, and it looks like it probably is an older virus that was more pathogenic initially. And an interesting thing about viruses as they change species is they tend to change their ability to inf infect new tissues and they can become more virulent. But over time, they should become less virulent. So right now, the best idea that I have is that this was an older virus that was more virulent that ironically is becoming less virulent in other bat coronavirus uh, incidences coming into humans. And I know that's complex, but uh, we happen to have fallen into an infection that was probably a laboratory uh, infection. They do uh, develop recombinant coronaviruses for vaccine purposes in China and elsewhere. It's possible that the Chinese scientists were trying to jump on the global market for a coronavirus uh, vaccine, which would be huge because it's a, it's a cold virus. Our country put a moratorium on research in putting new functions, gain-of-function research, on these very coronaviruses out of concern that you might make a Frankenstein virus in the lab. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I think that that does, has nothing to do with this at this time. What can people then here in the USA do to protect themselves? The entire world needs to know, don't put your hands above your shoulders. That prevents you from putting your eyes, ears, nose, and mouth, uh, putting your fingers in your eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Um, you should change the way that you greet people instead of shaking hands and hugging and kissing. We do what's called an Ebola fist bump, where you greet a person by bumping their, it's a technique that was developed in 2014, 2015, during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Uh, all public places should wipe down all common surfaces. And I'm talking light switches, bath fixtures, um, keypads in the grocery stores, menus and restaurants and so on. Uh, they should have a person on the staff that's like a sanitary custodian whose job it is, and you could rotate this job by the hour for your staff to go down and wipe down doorknobs and wipe down uh, telephone handles if you still have a landline, uh, and just sanitize the environment where people touch things. And um, I think that'll do a great service to everybody in the community to uh, shut down the, the rate of transmission, which is particularly high for this virus. Not to mention washing your hands, uh, something simple. <laughs> okay, Dr. James Lyonweiler, author and editor-in-chief of the journal Science, Public, Health Policy, and Law. Thank you for sharing your insights. Valentine's Day, it's a time for love. Here in the United States this year, consumers will spend more than $27 billion celebrating Valentine's Day. And ladies, men will spend nearly $6 billion on jewelry. Not on candy or flowers, but on silver, gold, and diamonds, other gems. Overall, the average male will spend $187, women, $118. Hey, guys, whatever happened to the idea of equal rights? You're spending almost $70 more than the females. Well, the average spent by males and females is $152. But for millennials, they'll spend the most this Valentine's Day, $208. 
and 9 million marriage proposals are expected again this Valentine's Day. All of this is because of St. Valentine. He was a martyred Roman priest who advanced Christianity during the 3rd century. Some say he was involved in the miraculous healing of a judge's blind daughter. Another account says he healed the deaf daughter of a jailer. Regardless, he was jailed for proselytizing and for illegally conducting Christian marriages. For that, he was beheaded. The Apostle John said in his Gospel, chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Well, St. Valentine definitely did that. He was a man who loved others. It's all about love. Remember this one from the Beatles movie, Yellow Submarine? It was first released in 1968. How many Beatles fans have played that song over the years? More than 1,900 years before the birth of the Beatles, someone else talked about love, and he influenced the world much more than the Beatles did. Sent by God to save us, Jesus gave us a new command. In John 13, 34, he said, Love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So how do we know this Valentine's Day and every day if someone truly loves us? Well, here's what to look for. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Six verses later, Paul wrote this. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So this Valentine's Day, tell someone close to you that you love them. And let's show others the same love that God has for us. And that's not just for Valentine's Day, but forever. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, happy Valentine's Day. Be blessed.